I wanted to try to answer some questions that I'd heard. I, I, can't, uh, I can't vouch for this PowerPoint. I threw it together this morning so quickly, I'm embarrassed to say how, how little time I spent in this thing. Uh, I, I must give Dr. Jeremiah a lot of credit. There's, I've been, been listening to and reading a lot, a lot of books on prophecy, end times, and politics. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try not to get into too much politics. But this is back at the end of the last message last week. And Lisa had a question about over here where the church age ends and it says the righteous dead are raised. And when we go up to be in heaven, when we die, anytime during the church age, when we die, our spirits go immediately to God in heaven ever since, as I understand it, ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the moment you die, the moment my mother died in 98 and the moment that, uh, that uh, Richard died in... Uh, last Monday, he stepped immediately into the presence of Christ. And if I understand Christ's words correctly, uh, Jesus came back and met him, or he was brought up quickly to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think the first thing we see after we die is the Lord Jesus Christ. While we're up there, we will be given a spiritual body to operate in, in heaven's realm, and our physical bodies will either go in the ground or the way we're doing it nowadays is we're just sprinkling our ashes all over the place. Uh, mainly, I think, because of cost. It's getting to where it's easy to spend $50,000 on a funeral, and it's just embarrassing what some of those things cost. Uh, my mother's, I think, that was 30 years ago, and that, I believe we had a hard time keeping it under $25,000. It's just a colossal use of money. But our bodies uh, go into the ground and dissolve, in the dust, uh, dust you were, God said, and under dust you will return. And uh, our, phys our spirits go to be with the Lord in heaven ever since the resurrection. Prior to that, we believe there may have been a holding zone uh, where the spirits waited. But after the resurrection uh, made it possible that spirits could go to be with God. So I believe for the last 30 years my mother's been with God in heaven. Although I don't know if she would say it's been 30 years. In fact, I'm not exactly sure how that works. I heard someone talking about time and eternity saying that uh, my mother and I will arrive in heaven on the exact same, at the exact same moment. And I'm thinking, nope, I can't deal with that. My mind is too linear to even think that way. So I think she's been there 30 years. And uh, when, when Jesus Christ returns, if I'm still alive, if you're still alive on the earth, he's going to bring them with, with him. That's what Paul tells us. And he's, we're going to meet the Lord in the air at the rapture. Uh, now, the thing that when I close this out, so my daughter was wondering, do, do we go to heaven or do we just go in the ground? The answer is we go to heaven, our bodies go to the ground. And then I said, that when I looked at this, I obviously didn't spend enough time looking at this chart. And this guy's a Presbyterian. But I was surprised when I was reading this to you last week, I saw that over here next to the millennium where the tribulation saints are raised. That's true. All those that died during the seven-year tribulation that are saved, all those that get saved, I should say it a different way, all those that are saved during the tribulation and are murdered uh, will be raised at the end of the tribulation to go into the millennium. In fact, everybody that goes in the millennium is going to be saved. Not everybody that lives through the millennium is going to be saved because they're going to have children for a thousand years. And a lot of those children are going to choose not to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they can see him and talk to him. It isn't a question of faith. It's a question of whether we'll yield to him. Anyway, I noticed this little phrase down there that said Old Testament believers raised 
And I said, oh, I don't believe that. And I thought, yeah, I just put up a chart I don't believe. I, I didn't even pick that detail up. And that's John said to me, he said, what was it you didn't believe about that chart? Well, what I don't believe is, I believe the Old Testament believers and the church age are all raised when Jesus comes back. I think, although we, this is really the second resurrection, often it's referred to as the first resurrection. Jesus was the first, you see. And then we're the second. The righteous will be raised after that. And then the third resurrection, of course, is when the tribulation saints are raised. And then the final resurrection is a resurrection of the, the doomed or the dead of all ages. So anyhow, I don't know if that helps clear anything up. But if you have questions, do not hesitate to ask. I'm happy to tell you and show you what I don't know. I mean, I'm a specialist at that, so that would be fine. Uh, but I kind of like that chart. Um, but we're not going to do dispensationalism today. Uh, you know, the silence of the Bible on the United States in prophecy is, uh, is overwhelming. And a lot of people say, you do all this end time stuff. Well, what about America? Does the United States have a place in end time prophecy? Now, one of the books that I've been listening to is Dr. Jeremiah's book, Book of Signs. It's, a, it's very extensive. It's very long, a lot of detail in it. And this isn't even a piece of one of his chapters, but it's a part of it. Uh, and there's no doubt... Uh, uh, Dr. Jeremiah says that the United States has held a special purpose in God's plan. Uh, we have a part in the history of God. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Now, many of you probably don't know Peter Marshall. His wife, Catherine Marshall, has written a number of books, a couple of which have been very profoundly impacted my life as a new believer. Uh, Peter Marshall was a minister and a, a, he, he was a uh, I can't think what the word is, chaplain at Congress for many years and a devout patriot and wrote dozens, dozens of books. Uh, but one of the things that he said in his book, The Light and the Glory, if you haven't read that, uh, it's old. I mean, it's probably back in the 50s. But if you haven't read that, it's an interesting look at American history from a biblical point of view. Uh, actually, world history from a biblical point of view. But one of the things he says there's in The Light and the Glory is God has had a special plan for America a stage for a new era in the drama of man's redemption. Basically, he's saying that God used the United States, this continent, as a staging area for world missions. It is clear that God has a plan for America. You know, and he goes on and recites, this is Peter Marshall, uh, from George Washington kneeling down in the snow at Valley Forge, praying for the future of this new nation to the founding fathers on their knees, praying as they ask God's guidance to help them as they, divide, as they design the Constitution in the First Continental Congress. To Lincoln praying for our nation in the hour of our greatest national crisis, God has had an influence on this nation. George Washington is quoted here as saying, uh, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of man more than the people of the United States. Now, you know, people back there talked funny. They were smart. And it's hard to read that sentence. You've got to go back and read that again. Nobody, I'm going to paraphrase this, no one is bound to acknowledge God more than we are. That's what he's saying. It's a hard sentence. No people, that's us, can be bound. Looks like I typed that wrong. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every day that the sun rises on D.C., the first thing the sun hits on the top, the very tippy top of the Washington monuments are these words, Laos Deo, praise be 
to God. The very tippy top of the Washington Monument. So I thought, well, that'd be really cool to see a picture of that. Now, that fool there is... <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the Washington Monument, but I get airsick just looking at this picture. That, that guy is standing on a scaffold, and, and he had just placed the aluminum obelisk on the very tippy top of the Washington Monument. And I'll give you another view of that. This is an actual picture of what went up there. But it's very hard to read in this photograph, and I've tried to find you a better photograph, but I couldn't. But I did run into this, and since it made me airsick, I thought you might enjoy that too. Um, I don't have any idea how he got up there, but he's polishing that aluminum, praise be to God. That's incredible. I mean, I go up four steps on a ladder, and I'm starting to get queasy. This guy, I don't know how high up in the air he is, but I'm telling you, he's up there. I don't know how he got there. I know he's going to rappel back down. I can see the rope, but I don't know if he went up there by helicopter. It, it almost looks like he climbed out of that window on the right side. But to tell you the truth, that guy is not afraid of height. I can tell you that for sure. Kenny ought to be here. Kenny, you ought to be up there. That's, that, Kenny's not afraid of height either. Now, this is a drawing of what it says, but I couldn't get a good picture of it. This was in 1934. The repairs were done. Laos Deo. Praise be to God. Uh, Calvin Coolidge... Uh, wrote this, that the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if the teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. That's almost a prophetic statement that as we turn farther and farther away from the Bible, it'll be almost impossible to look at the laws of our land back when he was president and enforce them. And that's exactly what's happened. What, what's happening now is we are legalizing sin. We are promoting immorality in this country, and it's really tragic. It's really tragic. Um, Ronald Reagan has said, I have always believed that this anointed land was set apart in an uncommon way, that a divine plan placed this great continent here between these oceans to be found by people from every corner of the earth who have a special love for faith and for freedom. We could dig out these statements from presidents and politicians and leaders of our country, and I could stand up here and I could read them for 12 hours. You would be amazed at what politicians and leaders have said through the centuries, through the years, about this country, and it's really pretty remarkable. So what, what is America's place? Since World War II, uh, we were the force behind world missions. After World War II, Americans started 1,800 mission agencies. They sent out 350,000 missionaries. Since then, 95% of the world's population has had access to the gospel. Since World War II, America has always been a friend of the Jewish people, no much, certainly uh, no more so than after World War II. Not just because many Jewish people have settled in the United States, but also because of our shared Judeo-Christian values. President Truman recognized uh, the, Jew, the Jewish state of Israel and he recognized that, and he says this, that because in Deuteronomy he recognized that God gave the land to Israel forever. And that's why he agreed to it. President Trump was the one that finally moved the embassy to Jerusalem, but the presidents ever since President Clinton have all agreed it should be done. They just didn't want to start World War III, so they didn't do it. You know. So the historic love Christians have had for Israel is based upon our shared religious history and our love for the God of Scriptures. Sometimes I think we evangelicals annoy the Jews with our gushy love towards them because they're not as religious as we are, evangelicals anyway. But they, we've been a force to support 
and defend Israel ever since this country was founded. Uh, I'm having a little trouble with my mouse here. Now, God has promised to bless those who bless Israel, and He has certainly kept that, prob- that promise to us. Now, as to the silence of the, of the Bible on American prophecy, the question is asked, does the United States have a place in end-time prophecy? I don't know if you want to leave, but your grandchildren are here. I don't mean to kick you out of church or anything, you know. But I will say that Jacob does look bored. Oh, he's going for the, he's headed for the junk food. No junk food. So the question is, what is our place in end time prophecy? In the grand scheme of history, truthfully, our nation is a new kid on the block. And, and quite literally, prophecy's focus has always been on the Middle East and especially on Israel. You would not expect prophets in the Old Testament to discuss nations that have not yet begun. It's actually very unusual. It's, it's remarkable that Daniel did that. But when he did that, as he spoke of uh, Babylon and as he spoke of Persia and Greece and the Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire, all of those empires had a direct bearing on Israel. Uh, every one of them set out to control, dominate, and ultimately destroy the people of God. So that's why they were in prophecy. Now, the USA as we know it today was really, I, I, I know we've created a lot of enemies and a lot of people right now are very upset with us because we moved here and overtook this continent. And most of us who came here in that great migration from 1630 in, in uh, 1632 in Virginia and onward, most of those people, most of us, are of European descent. Uh, true, we pushed some people out in order to do that and offended a lot of people. Many came to this country for a new life. Many came for religious freedom. Many came to get out from underneath the domination, the domination of other churches. Many came to celebrate. Now, it's true, there was another half that came. There was a half that came to this country, and they were interested in, in plundering, and they were interested in stealing, and they were interested in gold, and they were interested in getting rich. But you know that anywhere God is moving, the devil isn't too far behind him. And it's true. There are elements in this country that came for noble purposes, and there are elements in this country that came for evil purposes. And that's both true. Wherever God is active, the devil is active. So in the grand scheme of things, we're not in prophecy because, truthfully, we're just a little blip on the history of the world. Also, when you think about it, many nations are not mentioned in the Bible. Nations that weren't, didn't exist in that time. It, I don't know. I, I was thinking a couple of weeks ago what it would be like if, uh, if one of the prophets in uh, Ezekiel, say, had talked about you know, the United States. Uh, how that would have affected world history if the Bible had pointed out that there's vast, virtually or nearly uninhabited continents just to the west of Europe. Uh, I don't know, it would have certainly changed world history if we'd have known 2,000 years earlier that we could have done a Virginia colony. Of course, we wouldn't have been able to get there, so it probably didn't matter. Now, the most likely scenario is the U.S. will be part of the European nations during the Tribulation. That's the most likely scenario, and it, it certainly seems most tangible to me. 
that we'll, you know, we, we talk about three, three major world powers during the tribulation period. One is a, a ten-nation confederacy made up of the European nations. Predominantly, we call that revived Rome, and in Daniel's vision, that's the ten toes. Uh, the ten toes that get crushed by the rock, that's the last world empire. The rock is the rise of uh, the millennial kingdom. Jesus is eternal reign. Uh, so most likely we're going to be part of that uh, if we exist at all. Um, now, there are three different end time theologians that I'm quoting here. One said, and I wish I'd have written his name down, but I didn't, that we'll probably be absorbed into the European Union. We'll be one of the ten nations. Another one said that we'll be invaded by outside forces. We, we've never thought that even remotely possible. Quite frankly, you know, Japan, one of Japan's leading uh, generals during, after World War II was asked why they never invaded the American, the, the U.S. mainland. And he said, we were well aware of the fact that virtually every American home has a gun and someone in that home knows how to use it. And while we talk about our armed forces, our armed forces, the American military, pales in comparison to the American gun owner that is capable of defending his own property. And Japan decided it would be better to just stay out of our shores, that it would be a problem invading the U.S. And we've always thought it was impossible to invade the U.S., actually until just recently. With open borders, uh, we don't know who's coming in, when or why, and it would be entirely possible to invade this country now. And when you think of the loss of uh, patriot, uh, patriots that are being removed from our military forcefully, I mean forced to resign and drummed out, uh, we don't really know uh, what we have for a standing army anymore or what we have for a defense of our nation. So. It seems in the last five years it's more plausible now than it ever was before that the United States would be invaded by outside forces. But it's still pretty unlikely. I think I read somewhere one state put 900 deer hunters in the wood, 900,000 deer hunters in the wood for one season. I think that's a pretty significant army. And that's just one state. I think it was Michigan. Um, so one is most likely will be absorbed in the European nations. So the second is American would be invaded by outside forces. And I still view that somewhat unlikely. The third, this is John Walford. He said America will be so financially crippled as it will be rendered insignificant. Now he said that back in the 50s or 60s. So that was prophetic. It's really pretty close to true now. When we have to contact a foreign country and ask them to make more chips for the guidance systems of our missiles so that we can go to war with them, we've been compromised. You know, when we have to go to a foreign country that we could easily be at war with any day now and ask them for the medicines that we need to keep our people healthy, we've compromised our security. I, I hope you see that. Uh, but John, John Walford said America could easily be so financially crippled as to be rendered insignificant. And a third, and I have the guy's name, and I didn't write it down, but he was a politician. He said, we could easily be reduced to a position of powerlessness by a dirty bomb, which we feared for a long time. 
or by a nuclear explosion, which is very likely when a rogue state sells uh, their nuclear missiles to a terrorist organization in order to blow up one, two, or three, or four cities. Uh, you, you, you can't even begin to imagine the financial impact of a nuclear explosion going off in New York or Los Angeles. It would be hard to, it would be hard to quantify, you know. But he said a dirty bomb or a nuclear explosion. And then the last thing he said, it's even possible that we could face a biological attack. I think, well, yeah, that's actually more possible now than it ever was before because it becomes more and more clear that COVID-19 was developed as a bioweapon. Whether it was released deliberately or accidentally, I suppose will be proved 150 years from now if the world continues, but uh, everybody has their opinion. But many, many of our political and military leaders feel that another attack on our soil is inevitable. Now, when they say another, they're talking, they're comparing it to 9-11, where uh, the planes took down those buildings and attacked the uh, Pentagon. They're, that, these words were written before COVID even happened, you know. Now, we know our enemies would jump at an opportunity should a weapon of mass destruction become available to them. And we know that our only defense is in tracking down that weapon before they can get their hands on it. And it's a full-time job for the American military and the intelligence department to keep an eye on every known nuclear, nuclear weapon, especially the smaller ones, the kinds that would take out a whole city, you know. Anyhow, where are we in this? Probably after the rapture. I, I don't think I. I don't think I made a slide on this. I don't know if you thought about that. Talking about the rapture last week. I don't know how many Christians are in this country. To tell you the truth, I mean, born again, on the list to be raptured out Christians. I mean, I know there's a lot of people uh, that go to church. There's a lot of people that park their cars in a garage, but their cars aren't a garage. You know, there's a lot of people park themselves in church, but it doesn't mean they're Christians. I've heard the estimate be 10% of the people that go to church are actually saved. I had a very cynical pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, George Jackson, and uh, he used to say when the rapture comes and goes that the preachers are going to get up and they're going to say, well, attendance is down a little bit today. They're not even going to notice it, you know. So if, you, you, if it is a significant loss, I mean, if we're talking 20 million people, try to imagine this country after 20 million of God's people leave and the salt and the light of the earth has left. Try to imagine that when politicians want to do some crazy, insane, immoral thing, no one stands up, but instead they cheer them on. Try to imagine the United States without any moral restraints. And the fact is, whatever its future is in prophecy, it's not good. And I wanted to end with uh, where we are right now. I mean, you know, talk about where will it be in the end times? Well, where are we right now? And I wanted to just wrap up with that. The first thing I want to talk about is debt. 2020, we were $26.7 trillion in debt. That was last year. You could easily round that up to 30 now, all right? When you add the five and the, uh, the five and the whatever Donald spent, Donald Trump spent, and then what the Democrats now want to spend, 
You could easily round that up to $30 trillion. The $26 trillion is 99% of our gross domestic product. So everything we take in, we owe. So we could take the entire earnings of everybody and every corporation in this country and just barely pay off our debt. 30% of, 37% of that debt is owned by foreign countries. I think China owns 24%. You know, foreign countries are not allowed to own property in China, but China's allowed to own property in the United States. And that's true in countries all across the world. By now, if you say we're $30 trillion in debt, that means every citizen, man, woman, and child, two, I'm figuring it at, at uh, 330 million Americans, every man, woman, and child in America owes $90,909. So you're basically $100,000 in debt right now, 90000 and that's not counting the interest. So the interest on $90,000, if you financed it over 30 years, would easily four times that. So you're looking at about $300,000. In 2020, however, only 144.5 million Americans actually filed a tax return. I'm not talking about paying taxes. I'm not actually filed a return. It's not even half of the people in the country even filed a return. Of them, of the 144 million 75.4 million didn't pay any taxes because of credits and deductions. Now that leaves 69.1 million Americans who actually paid any taxes at all. Now if you, if you take that 69 million Americans that actually do pay taxes and divide that into the debt that we have of $30 trillion, that means every taxpayer, those of you that actually pay taxes, every one of you who actually pays taxes at the end of the year, you now owe $434,782.61, not counting interest. So if you wonder why guys like Rand Paul are a little worried about the debt, you know, uh, that's why. You're $434,000 in debt now, not counting your interest. Do we have an idea of like where we were 15 years ago? Good question. I, I know I can find that information, but I didn't think to even look it up. Yeah. Is it just in the last 20 years that this has gone into the trillions? Oh, clearly, clearly. I would say if you go back 20 years ago, we were looking at five or four trillion. Yeah. But our gross domestic product has gone up a lot, too. And let me tell you, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I listen to people that say this doesn't matter at all. The debt doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all. As long as you're a country that can print our own money, it doesn't mean much. The problem is, as you print money, you drive up inflation. Now, inflation is good for debt because the more inflation, the more money is in the system, the easier it is to pay off your debt. See? So actually, inflation works good for the national debt. It's how you pay down your loan. So, you know, back when I bought my first truck, I, I bought a brand new Chevy pickup truck at the whopping price of $1,600. Paid in full, brand new. You know, that's what inflation does. Wasn't long after that, I bought a truck for $5,000. Wasn't long after that, I bought a van for $16,000. And now I'm looking at a truck that costs, sticker price, $50,000. That's what inflation does. But that makes it easier to pay that the $1,600 debt back. It's like, it's like getting an oil change in a tune-up now, you know, the price of a new truck.
So debt, debt could render us absolutely powerless on the world stage. The second thing, where we're at, where's where we're at right now. Oh, I had that slide there. I should have put that up. If you pay taxes, that's what you owe now. Uh, hmm. I don't want to, what's my time? I don't want to waste your time, but I, I really hope that someday soon the government is going to say, you know, it would be fair if every American paid a flat rate tax. And if you make money, you pay a tax. Just like when you spend money, you pay a tax. But if everybody had a flat rate, 2% or 5%, and we all pitched in, so corporations were always complaining about corporations. Do away with all the loopholes, and they pay, they pay the same percentage we pay. Rich people pay the same percentage we pay. That's the way it should be, in my mind. If, if we just took the entire you know, national debt and divided it by the number of people, and figured out over a 30-year loan, that's what we should pay. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have all these steps. The last two years, I haven't paid any tax at all. I have no idea why. I have no idea why. They just got so many things that the CPAs can, can reduce and deduct and change, and, uh, and the tax law is so complicated. Even they don't know it. They're relying on a computer program. It's so complicated now. And they constantly keep changing the law. So, my, my CPA has to buy a new program every year that costs him well over $5,000 just to keep up with tax law changes. You know? It's too complicated. I think if, if you're going to have it, I don't think you should even have an income tax, but if you're going to have an income tax, it ought to be a flat rate in my opinion. Anyway, that's just one of the problems we're at right now. Another is open borders, and I've, I've spoken on that already, but, you know, I'm not against immigration. The fact is, Americans are not having enough babies. Did you know that? We're having a lot of babies, but we're not having enough. Americans are not having enough babies to replace themselves. It's a problem now. I think we're having 2.1 babies uh, per family. 2.1 per... Huh, I, forget how the, I forget how that statistic works. But we're not replacing ourselves. I think it's 2.1 per family. Well... The problem is, you know, people don't always have that, but if the average is two, you're just barely replacing the married people. You're not replacing all the unmarried people and all the people that are killed in wars and all the people that die early. You're not replacing ourselves. Now, this is critical in Europe. In Europe, right now, they're not replacing themselves, and Europe is going to, Europeans are going to cease to exist. Uh, Europe is not going to cease to exist because people are moving in from Africa and from the Middle East and they're not afraid to have children and they don't think children are a burden. We're fortunate enough to have thousands of people, millions probably, moving in from South America and they're not afraid to have children. They believe children are a blessing. It's us Europeans that are so stupid, we think children keep us back from having the best car we could own and it's really tragic because we're not replacing ourselves. And you know, we. We don't have to worry about being taken over. A couple of generations from now, we'll all be gone. You know, we're just not having enough children. Although my daughter, Lisa, is doing a good job. She's keeping up. She's covered a couple of families. Uh, you know. So we need immigration. Don't get me wrong. But open borders is a problem because we don't know who's coming in. If you don't know who's coming in, you can't protect yourself. I'm all in favor of immigration. I'm all in favor of having uh, having uh, what the people that come in to work for the summer called migrants. I'm all in favor for having migrants come in illegally. I'm delighted that I have a legal migrant living next to me in my house. I have no problem with any of that. All people say, well, you're a racist. You want to put up a wall. No, it's not that at all. I just want to control who's coming in. I'd rather have a hardworking agrarian worker than I would somebody from, what is that, M M13? What is that? Uh, M, no, the, 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 Mexican, the Mexican cartels. 
M something. Yeah. Anyway, open borders, I think, are a real issue. And, and I think we recognize that. I, I know the Democrats aren't pushing it right now, but they do recognize it. They know it's an issue. We have this pandemic that simply shut this country down for two years. Can you imagine what, the, 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 the kill ratio of this pandemic was something like 0.1%. That's 0.001. They think that the kill ratio of the one in 1918 was closer to 50%. All right. Some people got that, that flu in 1918 in the morning and were dead in the afternoon. They died that quickly. It just, just wiped out. And in America, it was eight, 18 million, you know, 180,000, I think it was Americans that died in that thing. It was just terrible. Imagine if this coronavirus would have been more deadly. It's actually not as deadly as some flus that we face regularly. Now, if you think about what it's done to us, what it, I don't know if we could calculate the financial impact of the coronavirus. They probably will try to do that, and in 30 years they might have it figured out if we survive that long. So I, I'm just talking about where we're at right now. I mean, where we're at right now is where we're going, right? Where we're at right now is where we're going. If something serious doesn't change, we're seriously in debt. We need to do something about our borders. We're simply not replacing ourselves either. That's very important. We face this horrible pandemic, but, but it, it could have been a lot worse. We have serious divisions in our country. But this, you know, and at some point, if I ever get intelligent enough, I'd like to talk about critical race theory. I'd like to talk about its impact on our relationships in the church and in our culture. There are serious divisions in our culture. Whereas all this rosy glow, uh, Jesus love inside of the United States of America. For every one of us, there, there are others who believe the exact opposite, that we are the actual uh, scourge of Satan and have taken over this country and manipulated and used and, and abused people. And if you don't know anything about CRT, you need to start reading about it. You need to read about its history, its origin. You need to learn more about it. And I, I may actually speak on that at some point. Um, not next week. This is too depressing to do too often. Uh, so we have serious divisions in our country. We, our country is probably as divided right now as we were just before the Civil War. In fact, I've heard people say we're headed for a Civil War. And I've heard other people say we're in a Civil War. But the one I like the most that said, if we have a Civil War, it won't be like the last Civil War. We're not going to line up in rows and shoot each other. What we're going to do is states are going to refuse to do federal laws and the federal government is going to begin to punish them with tariffs. So you'll have states, and I love Texas, you'll have states like Texas that will refuse to obey Washington, and they'll treat, they'll, the, the government, the federal government will treat Texas just like we treat Iran. They'll level sanctions against them. That's, that's what, and I kind of agree with that. I don't think we'll, gosh, I hope we don't start shooting each other. I mean, it was one thing when you had to, take and pour gunpowder down your barrel and then ram a ball down there and then line it up and shoot it. But nowadays when we start shooting each other, it's, it's a nasty mess. So we have serious divisions in this country that we need to work on. We also have a problem with socialism, particularly started in the schools. I learned something new about socialism. I, I, there's a whole book on socialism that's called, uh, if you've got the patience to read it, I'll think of the name of it in a minute, uh, the uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. 
Man, it was long and it was dense, but it was really good. It goes through the whole history of socialism from start to the end. You need, you need to be aware of that. Uh, socialists have been working in this country for many years. I mean, back to the middle, actually the beginning of 1901, that's when Charles Darwin was born in England, uh, teaching and promoting their methods of top-down government control. Now, we have a socialist democratic country now, and truthfully, you need, you need some governmental controls because greedy people go wild if you don't have some governmental controls. So I'm not a libertarian. Uh, but the socialists have made so much headway in our schools that it's actually now branching into our public high schools and elementary schools. And kids nowadays, they think of uh, work, in, work in a different way than we think of work. I mean, their whole mindset on the American dream, their, their whole mindset of going out and getting a good job and working hard and, and getting ahead and buying a house and raising a family, they, they don't believe any of that stuff anymore. They don't buy into it. Now, I will say this, I don't want to waste too much of your time, but I, I would challenge you to find a country in the world where socialism actually worked, uh, where it was actually successful for the people of that country. Um, usually it resulted in uh, mass murders, mass starvation. Uh, you don't really hear much about that. Uh, an entire breakdown of the economy of the country, so much so that, you know, Venezuela is our most recent example, and you find that... Uh, in Venezuela, they went from a, a, a high middle-class uh, culture to where now 93% of them live below the poverty line. And that's socialism. That's the way it works. All the money goes to the top, and the top makes all the decisions. Pick a country. It doesn't matter what. China, Russia, Cambodia, Venezuela. Just pick a country and then study its history. Look at Cuba. I hear people say a lot of times, you know, why are, why are not Americans jumping on rafts and paddling to Cuba? Why are Cubans paddling towards America? Well, that's true. Although I, I did hear in the last recession, this is kind of a joke, but I heard, you know, we've had a lot of Mexicans working in, in uh, North Carolina where I live, where I have a home, and thank God they're there because... You know, there's not enough people to do the work in this country. You know, thank God they're there. But I, I heard after the last housing crisis and, and all the jobs left America because no one was building houses in 2008, 2009, 2010, that Americans were trying to sneak across the Rio Grande to get jobs in Mexico, but they were being turned back. So they weren't allowed to enter, you know. I think more seriously is America is actually turning its back on God. So right now I've got, uh, th th these are our current situation. We're in debt, we've got open borders, we face a massive pandemic with the possibility of one right around the corner. We have serious divisions in our country. We're being overtaken by the socialist philosophy. And finally, Americans who used to trust God are turning their back on God, and it's a shame. Atheistic progressives have been working behind the scenes since the middle of the 19th century. Charles Darwin is one, but one that I never realized was John Dewey. I didn't realize he was a progressive uh, socialist, or we used to call them communists. I didn't understand that. I really didn't know that if you ever wondered where this idea came from, that nothing is true, that truth is relative, uh, I, I, I thought that came out of Darwinianism. It does not. It was John Dewey that uh, promoted that. I thought he just showed us how we could find our books on the library shelves. 
I, I didn't know he was into education to a point where he wanted everyone to believe that there is no absolute right and no absolute wrong. And you know, you know, when you have this relativistic moral attitude, what you're saying is there is no God. There is no God. If there's no absolute right and no absolute wrong, there is no God. Because what we base right and wrong on is God. God said, thou shalt not. Those Ten Commandments, we believe, are absolutes. And they're, they're unchangeable. And if you reject that, which is being taught in all of our schools, has been taught in all of our schools, was being taught in all of our schools, even when back in the Dark Ages when I was in school. When you have that being taught, you're going to influence generations of this country. That is a real risk. And if there's anything I regret most about what I've done with my life, I think I should have worked more on Christian schools and homeschooling. I mean, we kind of pulled our family out and homeschooled them, and we just avoided it. But that didn't help the country. That didn't help the country. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is a book I read by Michael Yusuf. The book's called The Hidden Enemy. It's really good. Uh, I believe he's an Egyptian Christian who has a church in Georgia, if I'm telling you correctly. He said that our greatest enemy of all is within the four walls of our churches. And he quotes this from 2 Timothy, which is a favorite passage of mine, and I'm, not, I'm really basically just going to read it. But he said the biggest thing we face in this country is apathy in the church. That we're out there making our money, saving our retirement funds, sailing our sailboats and fishing and hunting instead of doing what this country needs. It's us. We can't blame the lost world for the condition we're in. We have to blame the church. We have to blame God's people. We're the ones that know better. We should know better. But Paul gave us this warning that said, this know also. I love the book of Timothy. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. See, it won't be their families that matter anymore. It won't be their country. It won't be their work. It won't be their community. It'll be themselves. Lovers of their own selves. Covetous. Rather than working to get ahead as a community, Paul said the time will come when we keep getting more and more stuff. And I hope you never have to look in my closet because I've got so many clothes there. I couldn't possibly wear them all. You know. The flip side of that is my wife has so many shoes she couldn't possibly wear all of them. What is wrong with us? You know? Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Boy, if that doesn't define our time. Have you been up on the news about what's been going in Bristol and uh, Middlebury and the schools and the problems they're having with behavior? I'm glad I'm out of there. Unthankful. We're about as unthankful a nation has ever lived. Unholy. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers. Incontinent. That doesn't mean we can't make it to the bathroom. It means we have no self-control. All right. Fierce. That means we're savage. You ever watch kids treat one another? That's a good word that describes the way teenagers treat one another. Savage. Despisers of those that are good. Hostile to virtue. Traitors. Oh, i got to give you that too. Traitors. Heady. High-minded. Each of those fascinating study. And we'll do it sometime. I did it years ago. I think it'd be great to go through it again. Traitors. Heady. High-minded. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. See, it doesn't say we're not lovers of God. It says we just love our pleasure more than we love God. But God said in the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Hedonism and money and science, they're the gods of America. 
Hedonism is the lover of pleasure. Money is covetousness. See, these things are our gods in this country. God knows it. Why don't we face up to it? Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And you know, you read this and you think, boy, those lost people, they're really bad. But the next verse says, having a form of godliness. Now the word form there is morphe in the Greek. It's outward appearance. This is not talking about the lost world. This is talking about us. Paul's talking about the church in the end times. We are the backbone, the light, and the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its favor, its savor, Jesus said, it's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trampled under the foot of man. If we're not doing our job as a church, if we're not salt and light, if we got our eyes on the wrong prize, the country's in real trouble. So that's my list of where we're at right now. Uh, it's pretty sad. Now, what I hear and hear everywhere I go is uh, Christians, sincere Christians are praying that God will grant us repentance and that we will have a revival. And that's my hope. The country got this bad before and we had what we call the Second Great Awakening. And thank God he brought that great awakening. The country got this bad right after the Civil War, where preachers like me would get up and do all this doom and gloom stuff, and then God, God sent a revival. Dwight L. Moody was part of it. He went all through New England. You know, preached over there at that church, actually. Dwight L. Moody, great evangelist. George Finney, lots of great evangelists. And the country turned around. It can still happen if the time is not right. If the time is not right at the end, we can have a revival. And that's my prayer, that we will have a revival and God will give us another generation, another 40 years. But right now, we're badly in debt. Our borders are out of control. We're facing a pandemic. We have serious divisions within them. Socialism is a cancer that's going to destroy this country as it's destroyed other countries. And worse still, America as a nation is turning its back on God. And worse than that, the church doesn't care. We're too busy fishing, making money. Father, we do pray for this country. I thank you for the privilege of growing up in America at the best time it ever was. Post-World War II, everybody was optimistic and the place was getting better and better. And we thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for growing up in the 50s and, and surviving the 60s. I guess it's the best way to say it. But I thank you most of all, Father, that you broke into my darkness and you saved me from my own sin. And I pray that's true for everybody here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.